Many of you know that Janet and I began our married life and the start of our professional lives on the East Coast. <laughs> What'd I say? Janet, but I'm going. Oh, no, right. <laughs> Never have an associate pastor that has the same name as your wife. It, it's... But we had fun there, didn't we? <laughs> you know, for a preacher, that is a really bad feeling when you, you say something, you don't even know what it was you said, and the congregation is laughing and clapping. It's... As a child, do you ever have a dream where you were in school in the lunchroom and, you know, your pants fell down or something? That's kind of how I, f I felt there, which is a wonderful segue to telling you about the time that my wife of 29 years, Janet, and I began our lives together out in, uh, on the East Coast, and we used to love to go to Baltimore. When we were in D.C., we would drive up there, or when we were living in Anne Arundel County, the light rail would take us right, it would drop us off right in front of Camden Yards, and we used to love to go and watch the Baltimore Orioles uh, play their games. We loved to walk down the street. Uh, past a very historic Methodist church where the Christmas conference took place and, and just go down and, and eat blue crab, crab cakes. It was wonderful. How many of you have been to the Inner Harbor or to Camden Yards in, in that part of the country? You know, from Camden Yards, just a couple blocks, and you don't even have to guess the way because there are footprints that lead you to Babe Ruth's childhood home. And just a couple uh, blocks further north of that, there is this Presbyterian church right in the middle of the city that still has a cemetery out in front, and there are some famous people who are, who are buried there, including Edgar Allan Poe. Anyone heard of Edgar Allan Poe? Uh, the Baltimore Ravens, the football team, is... You're laughing at me again. Did I do something wrong? Okay, I have a complex. <laughs> so I'm talking about Edgar Allan Poe and uh, the Baltimore Ravens named after the raven, but how many of you are familiar with A Telltale Heart? Are you familiar with that gothic short story? And in that story, this man commits a murder. And to get rid of the body, he puts it under his floorboards. But all of a sudden, he starts to get haunted. He starts to hear the heart beat. And the police come and they start this investigation and he starts covering it up with lies, lies upon lies. And then it, it's starting to really kind of go out of control for him. It's starting to haunt him. It's torturing him. And we know that sin, like lies, often requires more and more to cover it up and it will haunt us. It can drive us mad. It certainly robs us of a sense of peace. Well, this man is in a cold sweat, and the heartbeat goes on and on and on, and he's certain that everyone else should be able to hear this heartbeat, and he's wondering if they're just kind of taunting him or torturing him by not thinking that they can hear it, and finally, in desperation, he confesses everything. An ancient proverb says, three things cannot long be hidden, the sun, the moon, and the truth. The sun, the moon, and the truth. And so before we even get to the scripture, I want to ask you a question. Have any of you or are you currently being haunted by a decision that you have made? Have you ever been haunted by something you did or something that you did not do that you know you should have done? Are you haunted by something that you have seen, that kind of thing that you'll never be able to unsee again? Or, or are you haunted because at this stage in your life, there's something you desperately did want to see? but for a variety of reasons have not. 
Have you ever been haunted by something you said or by something that you did not say before it was too late to say it? John the Baptist, the forerunner, the one who acknowledged that it was his job to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah, John the Baptist would never have left something unsaid if it was truth. That's a prophet's job, to speak, to speak truth to the power. And the situation that John the Baptist, that we're going to hear about, that he could not remain silent about, was an illegal marriage of a king. A marriage that was against the law. And so in addition to John in this passage that we're going to hear, we have three major players in this text. And the first is a man named Herod Antipas. And Herod was the son of Herod the Great, the one who was king when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the one who was paranoid and murder was no problem for Herod the Great, and he, he ordered the, the slaughter of any child two years and younger. Can you imagine something that horrific? You know, watching your husband walk around with your grandson or granddaughter, and I guess this is your child, right? That, can you imagine the state coming in and doing something horrible like that? The position. But there are two other players. So we have Herod, who is the son of Herod, and now we have Herodias, who is the wife of Herod, but she's also a niece and also a sister-in-law. This is not in Kentucky. This is taking place in the Middle East. And she's a woman who has a grudge. And we're going to hear what that grudge is for. But the final player, we have Herod, son of Herod, Herodias, and now Herodias again, the daughter who Josephus names Salome. But we have these three players, and this is, takes place in the sixth chapter of Mark, and it's kind of interesting that it is put right in here because this is from a much larger section where Jesus is really starting to gain momentum. He's starting to make a real name for himself, and the name Jesus is now on the people's lips, and it makes it all the way to where Herod was. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some were saying John the baptizer has been raised from the dead, and for this reason these powers are at work in him. But others said it is Elijah, and others said it is a prophet like the one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For Herod himself had sent men who arrested John, bound him, and put him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because Herod had married her. For John had been telling Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he protected him. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed and yet liked to listen to him. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his courtiers and officers and for the leaders of Galilee. When his daughter Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it. And he solemnly swore to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you even half of my kingdom." She went out and said to her mother, what should I ask for? She replied, the head of John the baptizer. 
Immediately she rushed back to the king and requested, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was deeply grieved, yet out of regard for his oaths and for the guests, he did not want to refuse her. Immediately the king sent a soldier of the guard with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head on a platter, and gave it to the girl. Then the girl gave it to his mother. When his disciples heard about it, they came and took his body and laid him in a tomb. Now, typically I say the word of God for the people of God, and we say thanks be to God. In some passages, we wonder how can we give thanks to God for a, just a terrible story that has so much wrong with it. And we can give thanks because we can take lessons. Lessons have been taught off of this passage for thousands of years, thousands of years. You see, Herod was guilty. He even acknowledges it. He said, I beheaded him. He was guilty of allowing the execution of John the Baptist to happen. And now he was being haunted by it. Haunted by it. As one has written, no one can avoid living with oneself. And when the inward self is an accusing self, life becomes intolerable. And so Herod had no doubt that he was being haunted by a ghost of John. It was John who was calling people of Judea and Galilee to repentance, to a baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And in the process, he also indicated and indicted Herod on a serious accusation. You see, both Herod and Herodias had uh, had divorced their spouses and had married one another. And it was by Levitical code, by Old Testament law, by the Torah, illegal to marry your brother's wife if your brother was still alive. And yet that's what he did. And so Herod is remembered throughout history for the murder of John the Baptist. And what made this murder really uh, uh, intolerable was that he killed the only light in his very, very dark life because he was a coward, because he wanted to save face. He had given this dancing girl his word in front of all of his colleagues, in front of all the people who were of importance. And he didn't want to shame himself He didn't want to eat crow, as the proverb would say. And so reluctantly, he has him killed. I imagine Herod thought, you know, it's good to be the king. That's the end of it. But there is that thing called a guilty conscience. And literature is filled with incredible stories. We already heard about the telltale heart, but Shakespeare's Macbeth is another excellent example of this story. Lady Macbeth uh, begins sleepwalking after having her uh, husband's rival killed, and she's tortured, and she keeps wringing her hands for hours lamenting, and maybe you know this quote, will these hands never be clean? Can't get the blood off of her soul. And so she is haunted. But we don't need to hear stories like these to tell us just how terrible a guilty conscience can be, the horrible ways in which we can be haunted. Anyone who has done something that they know they should not have done knows what guilt and remorse feels like. I read one scholar say this this week, in order to survive socially, we hide these things from sight hoping no one will ever discover them. It's like hiding dead bodies in the closet. Time passes and the bodies might rot, but the skeletons remain. And these skeletons have an unpleasant habit of popping out of the closets at the most inopportune moments, mocking us with their grins as they point a bony finger at us, saying, 
Gotcha. Gotcha. On Wednesday nights, I'm a part of a small group that uh, studies the, the scripture text that we're going to preach about on Sundays. And, and this week, one of the members of the, church, or of the small group said this, if you're haunted, you're not redeemed, you're not freed from it. If we're haunted, we're not redeemed because we're not free from it. And, and that statement got some others in that group really starting to talk. One person said, you know, no matter how hard you try to make restitution, you just can't get past it. You can say you are sorry. You can feel sorry. You can repent to God and still feel like you are being haunted. I have been forgiven by others, said one, but I cannot forgive myself. And this is kind of the haunting, the kind of the guilt that Herod was experiencing when he started to hear that John the Baptist was back. He thought it was a skeleton with a bony finger who would never leave him alone. But here's the real tragedy of, well, I guess losing your head is a pretty bad tragedy, but here's an ongoing tragedy with this. Herod failed to realize that Jesus of Nazareth was and is the Messiah, the Savior of the world, and was not there to get him, to haunt him. No, this Jesus was there to save, to extend grace. He wasn't there to point an accusing finger, but to vaporize a pointing finger. Had Herod only known that all he needed to do was to repent, if he had only realized this, his life would have had a much different ending certainly a much happier existence. And so as I look out at, at you here in the house and as I look into the camera to speak to you who are at home, hopefully we all realize that we don't need to fear the skeletons in our closet because Jesus can and wants to clean them out if we would just allow that to happen. As Scripture declares, if we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive and will purify, will free us. So let us give Jesus the key to our closets and let us be free. And I find it interesting that, that this part of Mark, as I said before, you know, Jesus is doing all kinds of great things. He has just started his, his healing ministry. He has begun to do miracles. And he's, he's actually doing miracles on the way to doing miracles. As he's going to raise a child from, from the dead, uh, another one comes in with hemorrhaging and just touches his cloak, and her faith has made her well. We know that just after this passage, some more incredible things are going to happen. He's going to send the disciples out two by two, and they're going to do things that, that just blew their minds. He's going to feed 5,000 people with a very limited amount of food. He's going to walk on water. And so we say, what in the world? Why is this silly story in the midst of all of this success? Why insert it here? And I'm proud to say that the Thursday or Wednesday group got it right. It is a foreshadowing of Jesus' death. Right in the midst of the disciples' most, productivity, uh, most productive activity up to date, this happens. And Jesus says to them, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. This is a reminder that even though Jesus was doing all of this, it's a struggle of love and truth. 
versus the forces of power and oppression. As it has been said, casualty is, or truth is the first casualty of war. And this was a war that was going on. Friends, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Herod failed to see it, chose to see him as ghost. Now we do know, because we've seen the musical Jesus Christ Superstar, that Jesus and Herod actually did meet one day. Well, we also know it because it talks about it in the Gospel of Luke. But we know that after Jesus was betrayed and was arrested, he was brought before Herod. And as Luke tells it, Herod was actually really excited to see this Jesus, to meet this Jesus, because he wanted Jesus to do some of these tricks, do some of those powerful acts like we've been hearing about for three years. Do it. Again, because we know Jesus Christ Superstar. So you are the Christ, the great Jesus Christ. Prove to me that you're divine. Change my water into wine. So you are the Christ, the great Jesus Christ. Prove to me that you're no fool. Walk across my swimming pool. Yes, if Herod only knew, he would not have had a haunted existence. He would have been freed from his own emotional prison. Maybe not overnight, but day after day, walking in grace, walking in community, being in holy dialogue through prayer and through listening. If only he could have understood the words that Paul is going to write a few decades later, when we are weak and could not help ourselves, then Christ came at the right time and gave his life for all sinners. No one is willing to die for another person, but for a good man, someone might be willing to die that God showed his love to us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not to haunt us, but to give us the gift of everlasting life. Christ died for us. Christ died for Herod. Christ died for those men who were actually in the act of crucifying him and torturing him. Christ died for the thief that was right behind, right next to him on the cross. Christ died for you and me. And Christ died for everyone, everywhere, who calls on his name. And friends, that's the truth. And that's the kind of truth that cannot be beheaded. A truth that will surely never haunt. Amen.